Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians assistants, and rehabilitation specialists from Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Last week, Governor Tom Wolf signed a right to try law that allows terminally ill patients to access experimental drugs and devices that haven't been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. The treatment would be administered under the recommendation of a physician. Advocates see this as an opportunity of last resort. There's no harm in trying something experimental, they say, and the treatment could yield valuable data for researchers as well as possible benefit a patient facing a life-threatening ailment. Opponents are concerned about potential liabilities for both the medical and pharmaceutical industry. Joining us today to discuss Pennsylvania's new right-to-try law is Christina Sandifer, Executive Vice President of the Goldwater Institute. It's a public policy think tank that has supported the use of experimental medicine since 1988. Ms. Sandifer, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Also, James Beck is a council resident in the Philadelphia Philadelphia office of the law firm of Reed Smith and co-author of the Drug and Medical Device Product Liability Handbook. Mr. Beck, welcome to the show. Good morning. Happy to be here. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Christina Sandifer, let me start with you first. Explain how a right to try law works. Yeah, so, you know, we, we have been working with patients and doctors and lawmakers across the country to create right to try because we became aware of the sad reality that thousands of Americans every single year suffer and die while there are treatments that could help them, but they're tied up in the red tape process being tested by the FDA, not just for safety, but for efficacy, for whether or not they'll actually work. And this process can take 14 years until before a potentially life-saving treatment gets to market. So we know that patient groups have been working at the federal level for decades to try to get some reform here for the most desperate and vulnerable patients, and they've really had little to no success. So we turn to the states. At the Goldwater Institute, we turn to state governments and state constitutions and courts to protect people's rights when the federal government fails to do so. And for us, the right to try to save your own life when all other government-approved options are exhausted seemed to us like one of the most fundamental rights of all. So we created these laws. They're called right-to-try laws, and they do just that. They protect a terminally ill patient's right to try to save their own life with investigational medicines that have received phase one Uh, safety approval, basic safety testing from the FDA. Essentially, the FDA has said that these drugs are safe enough for testing on human beings in clinical trials. And we said if they are safe enough for testing on human beings in clinical trials where only about 3% of all terminal patients are admitted, they ought to be available to the other 97% of patients who are out of all options. Now, the FDA already has a system in place that allows terminally ill patients to use investigational drugs or devices. So why is it needed on a state level? Well, the FDA has a system, um, an exception that they call compassionate use. And essentially, this is something that is a very cumbersome process. It takes a lot of paperwork. Some doctors have told us it takes over 100 hours just to fill out this paperwork. Uh, And many doctors say this can be insurmountable. Now, you know, sometimes people think, well, gosh, what's 100 hours or what are several weeks when it comes to filling out a request? But you can imagine how doctors don't always have time to do that on an individual patient, uh, basis for patients. And also, sometimes we're talking about patients that have mere weeks or even days before they need to get the treatment. And so Right to Try provides an alternative avenue for those patients 
who are at the most risk and who have really exhausted all of their other government-approved options. That's why Right to Try is needed, not to mention that there's a moral component here. When you think about it, when you're dying and you've exhausted all government-approved options, there is a medicine that is being given to people in clinical trials. Your doctor thinks this medicine is your best, last hope in order to live. You really shouldn't have to beg the federal government for permission to try to save your own life. You should just be able to go and try. Now, Pennsylvania became the 37th state to have a right to try law when uh, Governor Wolf signed this into law last week. But yet there hasn't been one substantiated case of a patient getting a medication or a device through a state law. So why have the law if no one is uh, utilizing it? Well, Pennsylvania actually just became the 38th state, uh, which is which is pretty exciting in just under four years. Um, and in fact, there are patients from all over the country getting treatments under state right to try laws. Um, in fact, one of my favorite stories deals with uh, Houston doctor Abraham Delpasand. Uh, he treats a pretty rare form of cancer in Texas, and he was told by the FDA when he was running clinical trials for a very promising treatment that he couldn't treat any additional cancer patients, uh, even though the, the medicine had completed three rounds successfully of FDA testing, and it's actually been available in Europe for years, because the FDA had all the data that it needed, and now we were essentially in a holding pattern waiting for final approval of that drug. And so Dr. Deltasand had to turn down patients who were actually scheduled for treatment uh, and who saw this treatment as their last hope. Then the Texas legislature passed right to try, and Dr. Deltasand resumed his treatment under the Texas right to try law. And so far he's treated, he said, about 100 patients, and many of them were told that they only had months to live when they got the treatment but are still alive today which is over a year later for some of these patients. So we have seen successes uh, at the state level for Right to Try, and I understand that it will probably take some time before we start to hear widespread stories because I think there are a lot of concerns when it comes to patients, when it comes to doctors, manufacturers, you know, that they don't really want to be the poster children for this law because there is still the FDA and there is still federal oversight, and they may fear that making their stories known uh, will have them run afoul of the FDA. I have to say I'm kind of curious about that, that uh, it has been used because, you know, in doing research, in fact, even on your own website, saw a Q&A. Now, this was from March, I think, that said that uh, so far no one had used it. But that, I'm not going to question you on that. Uh, Jim Beck, let me go to you. Uh, you have been skeptical of right to try laws. Why? I'm skeptical of them for three reasons, uh, at least on the state level. The first is that uh, the federal uh, FDA compassionate use program will probably preempt these laws. I haven't seen any decisions that where that has been litigated, but uh, state law can't override federal law, uh, regardless of how uh, possibly uh, beneficial the state law might be. Secondly, the manufacturers aren't likely to opt into these programs because, as we just heard, these often end up uh, involving patients with, like, days or weeks uh, before they would require the treatment. These are very ill people, and they do not fall within the parameters of the uh, clinical studies that the manufacturers are running. And under FDA regulations, any uh, adverse event that uh, occurs with the treatment of this drug, whether or not it's in the clinical trial, must be reported. And so these right-to-try laws uh, would, uh, if the manufacturers became involved in them, uh, generate additional uh, adverse events in populations that were not intended to be in the trials and thus would probably delay the actual approval of these drugs. And third, uh, how do you warn about a drug that uh, you don't know whether it's uh, effective or even safe because you're talking about after phase one trials, you're not talking about the situation that we, we heard mentioned here, which was where everything had been completed. I mean, the phase three trials had been completed, and they were just waiting on the FDA. These laws go uh, down to anything that's completed a phase one trial, which is a very small trial, uh, that's just to go and show that it's not toxic to people. Uh, so I don't think... Uh, that you're going to have an ability to warn about this. So manufacturers are worried about possible liability in civil litigation, and so we, we look at uh, the various liability provisions of these statutes, and some are better than others. Uh, the best that I've seen was in the federal act that was up 
called the Wendell Trickett Right Tri Act in, 19, in 2016 had a very good liability uh, immunity section, whereas this Pennsylvania law is probably the worst that I've ever seen. It doesn't even it doesn't uh, give you immunity. For from anything under the common law, and it just limits uh, the existence of a possible statutory right to... Right. Explain that a little bit more. When you say that Pennsylvania's law is like the worst you've seen as far as liability goes. Yes. Uh, the Pennsylvania statute, and I have it in front of me here, simply says that nothing in this act may be construed as creating a private cause of action. That just means there's not an additional statutory cause of action in addition to whatever common law liability may exist for providing investigational non-FDA-approved drugs uh, to someone in the public. Uh, so uh, it doesn't do, deal with the common law at all, unlike uh, many of the provisions in other states. Uh, and all it has is limiting a private cause of action under the statute itself. So it's, it's, this statute is probably worse than, nothing, worse than nothing from a liability standpoint. When you say that manufacturers would not get involved, what role do manufacturers have in this? I mean, do they have to agree to participate? Just what role do they play? Yes, this is a, these are purely voluntary statutes. Uh, the manufacturers are not being forced to provide any of these drugs. They can't be really forced to provide any of these drugs. There's no constitutional right uh, to uh, in, in play here, and the statutes do not purport to go and require a manufacturer to do anything. So every ability to use these drugs involves the manufacturer having to voluntarily agree to do it, and we don't can't tell whether uh, they can even make back the costs of their uh, uh, production. If, if they were to participate in this program, it's un, it's unclear from the Pennsylvania statute. Again, this is not. There are these statutes vary somewhat from state, and this is probably one of the uh, lesser statutes. I've seen uh, others. Uh, I think the Missouri statute was fairly was fairly good on that, uh, but uh, the Pennsylvania one is quite poor in this respect. It, it's vague and it's short, and it has a liability provision that is worse than nothing. Pharmaceutical companies and attorneys who would file suit. Now, Jim, let's face it: not exactly two institutions that enjoy a lot of popularity with the public. I mean, won't this be seen as hurting or turning their backs on people? who are about to die, that uh, there's not a whole lot of compassion here, and these people are desperate for, you know, some lifesaver or at least some way to uh, improve their lives. Well, I think that the best uh, thing that these statutes have done is they put pressure on the FDA, and the FDA has been making its compassionate use program much less cumbersome than it used to be, and I think that's where... Uh, we really need to be on this is we need to improve uh, the FDA's procedures rather than have a competing state law procedure. So, and so the manuf and, and the uh, the manufacturers do uh, participate in the compassionate use program under the FDA. They don't they they don't really participate very much in these programs. I'm I'm unaware of how many. Uh, not even to say success stories where the drug has cured someone, but whether there's even been participation under these statutes in many of the states. Christina Sanifor, what about that? I mean, that liability issue for physicians who would prescribe one of these medications uh, and, you know, a lot of other people out there, too. That's a big issue. It, yeah, it absolutely is. And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that right to try is not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve all of the problems that exist under this cumbersome FDA system. That's for sure. But it's a step in the right direction, and it's an important step. And as I mentioned before, there are patients that are currently being helped because of right to try. Uh, and if you want to visit righttotry.org, uh, that is our standalone website where you can see where we've collected some of those stories, and I encourage your listeners to do so. Uh, but Mr. Beck's, you know, concerns about drug companies not wanting to participate under a state system when there might be uncertainty as to what will happen at the federal level, I think are legitimate concerns. Again, I don't think that that means that states shouldn't go ahead and pass these laws and, and uh, enact these protections because they are helping some patients right now, um, but I do think it's driving reform at the federal level as well. There are some reforms that need to happen at the federal level in order to make this system more patient-friendly. Uh, Mr. Beck mentioned adverse events. Absolutely, companies are concerned about how an adverse event might affect the final approval of their treatment, and the FDA, despite years of begging patients, doctors, 
uh, pharmaceutical companies begging the FDA to clarify how it would use an adverse event uh, against a patient, something that occurs in a very sick patient outside of a clinical trial, uh, against the drug rather, uh, the FDA has not done anything to clarify that. And that is a, a real problem because it, it will make companies afraid to participate. Now, the good news is these 38 and counting state right to try laws have driven a reform at the federal level. Uh, a federal right to try law is making its way through Congress. Uh, that law that uh, Mr. Beck referenced actually just passed the United States Senate unanimously in August, which in and of itself is a pretty amazing feat. And in that law, it does clarify about liability, and it also discusses adverse events. And essentially what it says is, look, data is important, and the FDA can use data that it collects outside of a clinical trial, but it can't use that data to completely shut down uh, a clinical trial or stop a drug from receiving final market approval just because that manufacturer has made that drug available to a desperate patient who is sick and was likely going to pass on anyway. And I think that's a really important provision. And unfortunately, uh, while states do have powers to protect individual rights when the federal government has failed to do so, uh, this isn't about state law trumping federal law. It's about uh, the federal government violating people's rights and the state stepping in. Uh, there are still some things that do need to happen at the federal level in order to make these laws more widely available uh, and practically used by patients, and the adverse event clarification is absolutely one of them. So we're glad to see that Congress has taken this up. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they're available elsewhere. More information is at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about Pennsylvania's new right to try law, as I learned today, that Pennsylvania became the 38th state when Governor Tom Wolf signed the right to try law last week. It allows terminally ill patients to access experimental drugs and devices. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number, 1 800 729 7532. Now, uh, Jim Beck, I wanted to ask you about, I could ask either one of you, but let me ask you, Jim. Uh, I've been kind of using these terms interchangeably experimental and investigational. Is there a difference? Yes, there's quite a, there's quite a difference. Investigational is a uh, regulatory term, it refers to the use of of drugs in in the FDA's investigational drug and device program whereby uh, clinical trials with uh, certain uh, FDA regulated uh, parameters uh, exist to have drugs tested so that they can ultimately be approved. Experimental is a is a broader uh, more uh, uh, lay term which basically means anything, any kind of drug use where uh, you don't know what the outcome is likely to be and you're not doing it for purely therapeutic reasons. Now, I wanted to also clarify something else. You touched on this a little bit about phase one, uh, a medication that is before the FDA and has passed phase one is the only one's medication or devices that uh, would be approved for these right to try laws. No, I don't uh, think that's right. I think it's I think it, there are three phases. There's phase one, phase two, and phase three. It has to be past phase three, in fact, phase one, rather. But I think that these right-to-try statutes would allow anything that's past phase one, phase two, or phase three. And indeed, I think that that was the example that was given was something that had actually passed the phase three and was waiting for the FDA to determine its approvability. Oh, okay, what I was looking for, but I misunderstood, was what is phase one, two, and three? Okay, phase one is basically a small initial study simply to determine uh, that the drug is not toxic and that that it, it and that it uh has uh a potential for favorable results it usually is uh, a a study that has less than 100 people in it 
Phase two is uh, additional studies. They don't even have to be necessarily human studies, broader studies to determine whether the drug uh, is in fact safe. Phase three brings in efficacy. It has to determine in fact whether the drug works. Uh, that means you have to go and compare it in a what the FDA uh, considers to be double-blinded uh, clinical trials where the uh, doctors and the patients don't know who is getting what, and these trials eventually become unmasked later on to see what the results is, and you compare the results to what they call a placebo, which is basically something that's inert. That's easier to do in drugs than devices. It's hard to go and have placebo surgeries, so these are not as frequent in, uh, in devices, but happens all the time in drugs. They, they test it against essentially sugar pills to see whether you're just getting an effect of having any kind of treatment, which is sort of a psychological effect. And, that, and phase three, you have to show... Uh, statistically significant improvement in outcome uh, in order to get efficacy, and you also have to go and check all the adverse events that come in to determine that indeed the prior decisions with respect to safety are true. And she's right. This, these do take uh, years and years and years, and that has its, its own problems. But this is uh, the current system that we have to decide uh, what drugs are to be approved for what uh, clinical uses. Christina Sandifer, I mean, I, I read something that said there's a possibility that uh, there would be medications that have not been tested on human beings, but just animals that would be could be used here. Is is that accurate? No, that's not correct. Now, keep in mind, as Mr. Beck said, each of these state right to try laws are written a little bit de differently. Um, the Goldwater Institute designed the model legislation upon which these are based. I am not aware of any of the state laws. Uh, that that allow for drugs that have been used only on animals and not on humans. The concept behind right to try is that they're actually fairly conservatively designed, as you were just discussing. They don't apply to drugs that haven't been tested on humans. They don't apply to drugs that are uh, outside of the clinical trial process or that have been rejected by the clinical process. Uh, trial process. They actually just work alongside the clinical trial process, so they extend to all terminally ill patients the right to try these medicines that are available to those within the clinical trial. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting, though, because the FDA um, has, in some circumstances, seemed to allow patients uh, that are not admitted into clinical trials to take medicines that have not yet even been cleared for basic safety testing under phase one and have only been tested on animals. And I'm thinking uh, in particular about the recent Ebola example when we know that a couple of doctors were given treatments um, that it, were meant to treat Ebola that had, had, from what we can tell, not even passed uh, any basic safety testing on human beings. And again, I'm not frowning upon that, but it's one of those systems where everything is very secretive, everything takes a very long time, but there are special exceptions made for people uh, in the case of Ebola or when it comes to compassionate use. Only about 1,200 people per year are able to get access to treatments through compassionate use. Uh, and only about 3% of terminal patients make it into clinical trials. So, again, right to try is really a declaration of a fundamental human right, and it says that we should treat everybody equitably in this situation. If a drug is being made available to human beings in a clinical trial or through compassionate use or through some other exception that the FDA has not explained, uh, or if people can pick up uh, the wealthy and well-connected and, and move to another country to get treatment, then gosh, everybody ought to be able to get that same treatment here. Uh, okay, well, you just brought up something, cost. Uh, from what I understand, and I'm finding out that there's a lot of different information out there, that uh, in, in many cases, if not most cases, maybe all cases, the two of you can tell me that uh, this is something that wouldn't be covered by an insurance company. And so the costs would be borne by the patient themselves and their family. Is that accurate? Well, yes. it's, hard to, it, it's hard to know. Um, there is certainly no law that I'm aware of uh, under right to try that forces an insurance company uh, to, to pay for these treatments, and, and I don't believe that a law could do that. That wouldn't really be fair since the treatments are still making their way through clinical trials. Um, there are a couple of things that could happen here. One, uh, of course, the company could make the treatment available free of charge, as it does when it participates in the compassionate use process. Um, federal law prohibits a company from profiting 
on these treatments during this time, um, but most of the state laws do allow companies to recuperate their basic costs so that they'd be more likely to provide the treatment. There are charities that exist out there um, primarily designed for right to try. Uh, Overstock CEO Jonathan Johnson created one, and, uh, and the point of that is to help patients who want to use right to try uh, offset some of the costs of doing so. And then finally, interestingly enough, there are insurance companies that are paying for some right to try treatments currently. Uh, I had mentioned Dr. Delphasand earlier, and, and more information about him is on righttotry.org's website. Uh, he said that there are insurance companies that are paying for the treatments that he's giving under Right to Try because it is more cost-effective for that insurance company. We're talking about a treatment that is, has made its way through several phases of the clinical trial process. It's being used successfully in Europe, in fact, in some places for over a decade, uh, and it has m much fewer side effects than the next best treatment alternative, which is chemotherapy, and as we know, can have uh, very, very detrimental side effects and could be quite costly uh, for follow-up care. So when, when the clinical trial or, or when the right-to-try drug exceeds best medical standards uh, in the minds of the insurance company and they think that that is a good deal for the patient, there is an incentive for an insurance company to pay. And outside of those circumstances, there are other ways for patients to receive uh, those costs. Jim Beck, you wanted to weigh in on that? Well, I would say, yes, insurance companies cannot be forced to pay for these. And the, in the situation in Texas, I think that that's somewhat of an outlier because that's a drug that's basically awaiting approval. Everything has been done. That's close to an off-label use, although not exactly. And sure, insurance companies uh, are economically driven. And whenever they find a treatment that they think will save them money and, and, and help with uh, patient care, they, they will take it. And that's what, as it should be. Uh, the thing that bothers me is this talk about fundamental rights. We had that happen uh, a few years ago in a case called Abigail Alliance in the D.C. Court of Appeals, where initially a, a, uh, a panel of the Court of Appeals found a fundamental right uh, to try uh, investigational drugs. And what that was, that was not directed at a right to try law. That was to try to force the, the manufacturers to provide the drugs. And that's the situation we have to worry about here if you start throwing fundamental rights around. Uh, the manufacturers are the, are, are the source of these products. They make these products. They discover these products. And when you start talking about fundamental rights, what you're going to end up having done is these, are they going to, these are going to be directed uh, against the drug companies themselves to try to go beyond uh, where these statutes are and try to force the uh, drug companies to provide these, these products. And that is something that I'm just dead set against as a, as a defense counsel for, for a drug and medical device company. You know, I, 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 Jim, what I hear from you is that uh, you, you're, there's some language in these right-to-try laws that uh, you don't feel uh, protect physicians, uh, protect uh, uh, manufacturers, drug manufacturers. Let me just give you an example, as, as both of you have mentioned, that uh, this is being considered on the federal level. Uh, one line in uh, the, the federal legislation is being considered says, applies to anyone with a life-threatening disease or condition. Now, that sounds a lot different than terminally ill. Jim Beck, what about that? That these these uh, the way these things are written, they have consequences and applies to anyone with a life-threatening condition is a broad form. That does not mean that they are acutely ill necessarily. Uh, it means they could have uh, cancer at any stage. It means you could have uh, oh, COPD or something else that could kill you. It takes a long time and. I don't know exactly what they mean. I don't have any philosophical objection to right to try statutes. It's just that I have an objection that these things are uh, not likely to be effective. They're one of these feel-good programs that we see every now and then that politicians push, and they're not going to really accomplish anything. And if you have these, these very, the, the broader and vaguer the statutes are, the more likely they are not to work. Mm. And I think philosophically, very few people would oppose them, if any. I mean, if, if I was diagnosed with a terminal illness, be the first thing I'd want to do if there were no other uh, treatments available. But, uh, you know, Christina, you know, what Jim Beck 
says it's, it's very true that uh, if unless these laws are written in a way that spells out exactly what liability is, because I'm, I'm wondering, would doctors even prescribe some of these drugs if they felt there was a possibility of them uh, being liable? Well, you know, I, I think it's it's not it's certainly understandable to have those concerns. It's not correct to say uh, that right to try laws are unlikely to accomplish anything because in just four short years, I think they've accomplished more than anyone could have ever imagined or hoped for. Besides having 38 states and counting protecting this, these rights uh, and having actual patients who have been helped uh, by right to try that otherwise would not have been able to access these treatments, actual doctors being able to continue their practice because of these laws. Again, uh, we have real FDA reform that we can point to. Mr. Beck mentioned that the FDA has tried to simplify its compassionate use process. It's, um, it has uh, started a navigator program to try to help people navigate that labyrinth. We would, we would prefer to see that the labyrinth not exist in the first place, but nevertheless, steps in the right direction. The federal law clarifies some of these liability concerns. The federal law explains for the first time ever how an adverse event would be used against a company to make them feel more comfortable. Uh, so, you know, are there going to be doctors and manufacturers that are concerned about uh, offering these treatments under a right to try? Absolutely. And you can clarify as much as you want in a law uh, what the liability is, and there will still be some people that won't want to participate. There will still be some patients that don't feel comfortable about the risks. That's okay. Uh, this right to try is not a mandate, and as Mr. Beck said, and I agree with him, it, it shouldn't be. Uh, the fundamental right that's being asserted is not a fundamental right to take a product or a service from somebody else. A fundamental right is asserted against the government. The right is the right of the patients to be able to make that decision uh, for himself when his life hangs in the balance. That is a fundamental right, uh, and that is what Right to Try protects. It does not guarantee an outcome, but neither does the current system, certainly, uh, and this is a step in the right direction in order to protect that right and in order to allow willing participants to provide these treatments to people who really need them. Christine Sanifer with the, is Executive Vice President of the Goldwater Institute. James Beck is Council Resident in the Philadelphia Office of the law firm of Reed Smith and co-author of the Drug and Medical Device Product Liability Handbook. I want to thank both of you for being with us today. Thank, thank you. you very much. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Today's program, uh, we're going to be talking uh, well, not only about right to try, but uh, here in the second part of the program, we're going to be discussing uh, the action taken by the Trump administration last week as it concerns the Affordable Care Act. But uh, you can learn more about these issues, plus a deeper look at the changing tide of health care by checking out WITF's Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and WellSpan Health. Well, as I mentioned last week, Donald Trump signed an executive order ending the cost-sharing subsidies that help low-income recipients of Obamacare. 426,000 Pennsylvanians received their health care coverage through the Affordable Care Act exchange. The state's insurance department is predicting a hike in insurance premiums as a result. Joining us is WITF's Transforming Health reporter, Brett Shoulders. Brett, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me as always, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at WITF. And uh, that's, uh, again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. All right, the broad question, Brett, is uh, how would this have an impact here in Pennsylvania? Well, <laughs> your rates are going to go up. I think that's that's the uh, that's the simplest uh, answer. Uh, though the full extent of it, I think, is going to go far beyond the four hundred twenty six thousand people in Pennsylvania who actually are on the exchange. Uh, it's, you know, the thing is, what everybody has to understand is that by cutting that subsidy, it doesn't mean that people who are currently getting that subsidy, i.e. lower income folks who are getting insured through the exchange, those people are still going to get subsidized health care this year. But 
it's throwing the entire industry in turmoil because the insurance companies are going to have to come up with ways to recoup those costs. See, they're on the hook. The insurance companies are on the hook for that, um, but they're going to have to respond by you know r- raising their rates. So it's not just going to be the people who are benefiting from that subsidy, i.e. lower income people on the exchange. It's going to be everybody who uses the exchange. And by some estimates, it's, it's going to have just broader impacts on the healthcare industry in general. So while a few people may see their uh, premiums decrease, most people will see their premiums increase. So just today, the rates for the next year will be uh, released. Uh, Now, I've heard uh, figures being thrown around that uh, expect an increase of about 8% um, in, you know, for health insurance this year. Uh, will what uh, the president did last week, the, the executive order, will because I, I want to clarify here, mm-hmm. uh, for this year, will it have an impact? I think it will, and I can't, I can't overstate how much the timing of this, I think, really threw uh, a lot of state agencies into turmoil, such as the PA Insurance Department. Um, it literally made a conversation that I was having about the possibility of something like this happening suddenly went into reality, and... While the proposed rates have been out for a while online, I can only imagine that um, they're, you know, at the last minute, insurers are really scrambling to see if if they need to make any additional changes. I don't know how much power they have or ability they have to do that on such short notice. But, uh, you know, this is something that while it was quite shocking in its timing, uh, the insurance industry has been uh, worried about for a while. And so what we may be seeing is that they preempted some of that concern by raising the rates in anticipation of just the uncertainty. I mean, that's what you really have to understand here is that the, the, the uncertainty that was created by um, the Trump administration's general effort to um, sort of in any way they could chip away at the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, we've heard, uh, you know, insurance companies that uh, what this does, is it destabilizes the market. Talk about that a little bit, because, I mean, I think I hope most people understand how insurance companies work. And certainty is one of those. <laughs> I mean, we heard in the last segment right. about, uh, you know, having language that uh, everyone knows what you're talking about. And if there's any uh, if, if there's any question about it, that uh, insurance companies, for the most part, say, hey, you know, we, we we're a little bit leery of that. Well, yeah. And that's. that's that's why the approach, I think, has been what's what's been so shocking to a lot of people ab- about the uh, executive order. And certainly, uh, certainly, uh, President Trump is by no means the first president to use executive orders. Uh, president Obama used them at quite a bit. But I think what we see here is the difference between a uh, legislative effort to repeal and replace and and just basically saying I'm going to cut funding. Now, the, in the former situation, a legislative effort, you would have a lot of ways to unwind and create a smooth transition for the insurance industry. This situation is basically just kind of like flipping the whole board and 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 leaving it's you know it's uh, causing causing chaos and forcing the insurance industry and the healthcare industry and state agencies to just kind of figure it out and let the chips fall where they may. All right, well, let's talk about some of those state agencies. Uh, how has Pennsylvania, the agencies, and uh, the legislators responded to uh, the slashed funding? Yeah. The insurance department uh, was expressed a lot of concern about this even before the cost sharing reduction was eliminated. And while I haven't heard from them, um, you know, today, for example, uh, they, 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 have, they have explicitly opposed it. And the thing that, you know, you have to put this in context. Um, the insurance department, as well as the healthcare companies themselves, or the health insurance companies, uh, adapted to a lot of change over the past eight years, including having to administer uh, Obamacare. So um, now, for example, the PA insurance department is in the <laughs> unenviable position of having to administer and enforce a program that the federal government is is trying to basically undermine in any way that it can. So it's just not a good position to be put in, regardless of whether you believe that the Affordable Care Act exchange is a good thing or a bad thing, you're stuck in a really tough position whenever it's being undermined in that way, rather than through a legislative effort to repeal and replace, which we saw, you know, pan out this year. I mean, personally, I thought we were just going to see repeal and, another repeal and replace effort, you know, next year. But that's, as we see, not, <laughs> not what's happening here. Uh, let's go to the telephone. Mike is in Harrisburg. Mike, you're on the air. 
morning, gentlemen. Morning, you know, morning. If this should make it crystal clear to everybody that we need to do away with insurance companies paying for health care and go to universal health care, I mean, because this whole discussion from the beginning has been about insurance companies, not about Americans and their health and their health care. It's been about insurance companies and their profits and what they're going to charge. And the way to end that is to nationalize the health care system, put the insurance companies out of business, and be done with it because they have turned into monsters that serve only the rich. Thank you very much for your call. You know, ironically, there are those people who say that what the Trump administration is doing is actually driving an argument or making believers of just what uh, Mike said, that there may be more people who want to go to a universal health care system. Well, that's one side of it. Uh, don't I would I would be uh, hesitant to think that that's the only side of it, though. There are just oh, as I many know. people. I understand. Are... I'm just saying that 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 has been raised more often right. because of it. Well, the philosophical underpinning of the whole question is: can uh, can for profit health insurance coexist in a in a good way with providing the best care for people? As you assume that certainly we want to try to provide the best care for people that we can, and that's a that's a really interesting philosophical question to have. I think because. Um, you know the the goals of of, a, of any company are always going to be to um, you know yield the maximum return for their shareholders and to be a profitable good company and and oftentimes uh, that coexists well with being a good corporate citizen as well. So I, I don't know I don't know uh, if um, if they're not, if they're two mutually exclusive ideas or not. But I think that. Th- this is a move that has caused chaos on a lot of levels, and perhaps it is one way into more people having that conversation and reconsidering whether uh, you know private health insurance is a viable option for them. But it has been for decades, and you know, and something else I wanted to point out that not all insurance companies are for profit. Yes, yes, that that what, what, good point, and and that, thank you for the clarification on the language there, because you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, although there are some again who would criticize some nonprofit insurance companies for having a lot of money in the bank. Put right, it, put that's it that that is, you know, you're you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, who is supporting uh, the president on this? Well, there's an interesting backstory to this, and if you haven't really been following it closely, it kind of almost seems like it just came out of nowhere, and and uh, it's easy to to characterize it as just um, you know oh, Trump's just trying to destroy Obamacare. But the backstory on this that you have to understand is that. Um, the the Republican Congress has been um, making an effort to uh, stop these payments since 2014 because my understanding of the way that that they they panned out uh, it gets a little bit in the weeds with how how it has to go through Congress but my understanding was that uh, President Obama just kind of made it happen and didn't necessarily take it through a certain uh, congressional procedure so they basically argued that it's illegal payments and that's where when you hear Trump's language that it's almost a payoff. That's that's kind of what he's referring to is the idea that, um, you know, because like I said, congressional Republicans sued to stop these payments. So that said, there's been a bipartisan support to keep them as well until a repeal and replace effort came forward or until, you know, some other thing uh, happened to change the or improve the system. So it's not like we just had Republicans saying, uh, you know, Lockstep that they wanted to do away with this, but there is a there is a backstory. It is something that that um, you've had Republicans opposing for some time now on the on the you know in D.C. and it just takes someone like Trump to just come in and just be like, I'm gonna you know you know what I'm just gonna do an executive order and cut funding to it. How uh, political is this? I mean, it has come down along partisan lines in many cases. Although since the Affordable Care Act has been enacted and more uninsured people have become insured and some people who you know have had utilized some of the aspects of Obamacare have got to use it like you know your kids staying on uh, on your your policy until they're they're 26 mm-hmm. uh, the pre-existing conditions are that the polls today seem to to say that most Americans support uh, support tweaking Obamacare, but not replacing it completely. Yeah, uh, I th- I, as, as the caller pointed out, the the discussion over you know sick people getting getting uh, health care almost is an afterthought in a discussion that really seems to have a lot to do with um, politics. And I think here 
what we're seeing is is uh, President Trump trying to make good on what some of the things that he said he was going to do, and especially after you see two failed legislative efforts to push through a, a replacement for Obamacare, I can only imagine that that uh, he's he's trying to, um, and he's been roundly criticized by this, especially by de- Democrats, for saying that he's sort of like throwing bones at his to his base, uh, and. You, so what you see now playing out, I think, in Pennsylvania at least, is that a lot of – well, there have been some Republican representatives who have come out and said that they kind of don't really understand this move and that while they do support repeal and replace efforts, they don't necessarily think that it's a good thing to just cut the cut the funding. So in Pennsylvania, um, it's – I, I have to wonder if, if um, legislators are sort of hedging their bets a little bit and trying to or just waiting to see how this is going to pan out in terms of is this something that's ultimately popular among Republican voters? And that's a question I would really, really throw out there to, the, to those who, um, you know, who are Republicans, because I just don't know. Let's go to Gary um, in Juniata County. Gary, you're on the air. Yeah, Scott, I just <clears throat> mine's slightly different. It seems like every other day. You're going to have all the different states' attorneys generals challenging the government on some grounds, whether it's migration, immigration, flight status, you know, whatever it would be. Now I've heard a bunch of them are going to challenge him on this, that they just can't, you know, stop this. And it seems like instead of governing by legislation, you know, we're governing by the courts. It seems like, you know, (laughs) from the payments to his hotel to whatever, I bet there's at least... I think there could be hundreds of lawsuits. I don't know if anybody there could could check this, but it seems like every other day we hear about states' attorney generals are challenging this decision or, you know, this executive decision or whatever. But uh, thank you very much. I, I think this is, you know, way over the top. All right. Thank you for your call. And I will point out, Gary has given me a perfect lead-in, that uh, Pennsylvania's Attorney General Josh Shapiro will be on our program tomorrow explaining his lawsuit against the Trump administration with this move. But uh, you get Gary's point, uh, Brad, and and we're not just talking about uh, what the administration did last week, but in a lot of different areas. Yeah, and it really has to speak to the divisiveness of, of, of our times at the, now where people and, and, and you know, one could argue that, that uh, you know, the, the, the legislation from the states like in this case is, is one end of it and then the executive orders that we've seen and that, that existed and that were used extensively even during President Obama's uh, eight years was something that I think increased some of that divisiveness we're not going to find a legislative bipartisan solution. We're just going to you know, make this happen any way we can. And that's certainly what we're seeing play out right here. And that's not how our government's supposed to work. I know we're getting off on a tangent here, <laughs> kind of on uh, some philosophical point of view, but it, it's true that uh, this is such a, this issue in particular is such a divisive issue, but there are so many others out there. And you wonder whether government is actually working if, because that's what Gary well, is talking about, that if the courts have to make a decision and every, every move that's made that's not how it's supposed to work. Right. And let's also ask the question tied to that, is government working? Uh, what is the actual effect of this? I mean, take aside for, for a minute the fact that uh, all estimates are showing that in the short term, certainly, more people will be uninsured and almost everybody's rates will go up. Well, okay, we have saved about $7 billion. Now, let's keep that in context. Our budget is a $3.8 trillion budget. But we've saved $7 billion by cutting this funding. But the CBO, uh, you know, Federal Federal Budget Office. Th- thank you, uh, has, has projected that it's going to cost $149 billion between now and 2027 because, and I'm not going to bore everybody with the really in-the-weeds details on it, but it causes other other costs to go up. So, uh, you know, you have to wonder how much of it is, how much of it is, is more symbol than it is, uh, you know, substance, but... You know, that's something that's going to pan out over time here. You know, something else that's important, and we're going to be talking about this within the next month, but uh, the, the period for when people can sign up for insurance right. if, on the exchange, uh, this year has been shortened. The Trump administration has uh, reduced it. It's November 1st to December 15th this year, where in previous years it's been like November 1st to uh, January 1st and um, even January 15th. 
15th if you wanted to have it by the, you know, by a certain date and that kind of thing. And the administration also is not spending money to promote that exchange period, sign-up period. So that's one of the things that we, as uh, people in the media, yeah. will be publicizing because people there will be people who won't know. Yeah, that's getting lost in this in this conversation uh, a little bit because uh, so much is going on at once. But you're absolutely right. Uh, outreach efforts, which in past years. Uh, Agencies and groups, nonprofits were were paid, uh, were able to receive uh, funding to help get people signed up. So there was a real active effort to make sure everybody got signed up. And let's not forget that uh, if you don't if you don't have some kind of uh, insurance, you actually get a tax penalty right now. So mm-hmm. there was a there was a lot of reasons to get people signed up above and beyond just that it you know they'll, then they'll have uh, health insurance. So th- those efforts have been rolled back as well. So it really seems like uh, the President Trump's approach is to just kind of starve out uh, the sources, the funding sources for anything related to Obamacare and just kind of do what he do. But, you know, the, what, what I find so interesting about that is that it's it's a, a response that's not based on a clear policy path unless the policy path is sort of let the chips fall where they may. Because, you know, how predict how, how much can we predict with any kind of accuracy what the what will happen <laughs> as a result of that? So, Brad, we only have about a minute left. Yeah. Uh, so what happens next? <laughs> uh well I think that we're going to see uh, we're going to see the rates uh the the big thing is we're going to see the rates today. So it's a really big day for this. Uh and after that happens um I think we'll be able to have a discussion about uh, where you know how how much this is going to impact rates in the short term. Now we're also going to see um, a lot of other efforts play out uh, in terms of what the Democrats are going to do, and also in terms of what uh, you know all these lawsuits are, what impact they might have. So um, I think what everybody should do if they if they really want to follow this in a very real way is to is to follow stories related to those rate increases for 2018, and that's gonna that's gonna be the the signpost for the rest of this. Brett Schultz is WITF transforming health reporter. Brett, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks. It was a pleasure. And as I mentioned, uh, Pennsylvania's Attorney General Josh Shapiro will join us uh, at the beginning of uh, tomorrow's program to talk about his lawsuit against uh, the Trump administration and uh, questioning this. Also, we'll take a look at uh, economics trending on Wall Street. Uh, you know, we're setting records in the stock market for, uh, uh, you know, on the record highs you know, every day. And A lot of people are asking, why? Why is that occurring? That's coming up on uh, tomorrow's program. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community Osteopathic, West Shore, Carlisle, Hanover, Lancaster, Lidditz, and Memorial Hospitals. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com.